What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Sometimes when a black guy is put in a position of authority, other black guys, they like to single you out. Okay, because I'm not supposed to tell them what to do. When we have these conversations, we do them in stages, okay? Stage one, witnesses. Stage two, suspects. For her latest film, Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty director Catherine Bigelow leaves the war zones of Iraq and Afghanistan for a different kind of hostile environment, urban America circa 1967. Bigelow's Detroit examines the racial tensions that exploded into violence in the supposed summer of love. Our review, plus our top five films of 67, ahead on Film Spotting. Josh, pre your arrival here on the film spotting scene, we covered the movies of 1967 during our new Hollywood marathon that was back in 2009. We are just now, though, getting to our top five films of that year, which turns out to be a pretty incredible landmark year for movies. Easy pickings, right? I mean, a lot of times we feel there are a ton we need to catch up with or we need to rank them and figure out where might they fall, at least for me. There's some clear classics in this year that stood out. For sure. And if there was any difficulty at all, it was just deciding how to rank them and whether or not you could justify leaving some outside that top five. Speaking of catching up, we both did a little bit of homework. I know we each saw at least one movie of 1967 that we felt like we needed to see before forming this list. We will see whether or not that homework paid off. We'll get to that top five plus Massacre Theater and more later in the show. But first, let's head back to 1967 by way of Detroit, the latest film from director Catherine Bigelow. It's a war zone out there. They're destroying the city. I'm trying to help here. Don't say another word. Come on. I told you what I saw. What is going on here? It's not that simple. I know exactly who you are. Historical events have been at the center of two of the films we reviewed recently, Adam. Dunkirk and now Detroit. For the record, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets ditches history fairly early on. A little bit of history there, but then it moves on. That all didn't really happen? No, sorry to disappoint you. Detroit, though, which comes from screenwriter Mark Boll and director Catherine Bigelow, who previously collaborated on The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, takes us back to 1967 in the title city. After a police raid of an after-hours bar, there is an uprising of the predominantly African-American residents of the neighborhood, which spreads throughout the city and is met by a severe military crackdown. Conflict and violence consumed certain neighborhoods for five days. Bowl and Bigelow divide their movie into three main sections. They cover the shutdown of that bar and then the revolt, police violence, looting and rioting that followed. The middle portion concentrates on a police raid of a hotel That left three young black men dead. And then the final section is devoted to the court case against the police a few years later. As you can tell from that synopsis, Detroit offers a larger overview of its historical events than the narrowly focused Dunkirk did, even if Bigelow also manages plenty of moments of visceral immediacy. Now, that's an ambitious scope for a movie to take on. In your mind, Adam, 
How did Detroit manage it? It's funny that you bring up Dunkirk here because I feel like everything recently, looking back over our last three reviews, has been blending together. During our review of Dunkirk, I mentioned a ghost story. Couldn't be more different movies, and certainly that one not based on any historical events, but they're both movies that are fundamentally about mortality. They are light on conventional narrative, and they're both very much about time and the way we experience it. And then here with Detroit, I too was thinking about Dunkirk because both are, as you said, focused on events, and in this case, actual historical events, and they put us as viewers right into the middle of the chaos. And you're right, of course, as well, that Nolan very deliberately, with only the slightest string, keeps the focus narrow on the evacuation. We could probably get into a debate about the use of the word ambitious and whether or not Detroit and having a broader focus really is more ambitious or not, but there's no doubt that Bigelow wants to tell a more sweeping story. She is placing the riots and what happened at the Algiers Motel in that larger context of race relations, not only in Detroit, but in the country as a whole, I think. And that ambition or that impulse is noble. And it's certainly made with the best of intentions. And I think that Bigelow certainly is one of our best directors working today. And we see that in many parts of this film that does come through. So I admire Detroit a lot. Of course, so much of what we see unfold sadly does feel relevant in 2017. And that scope and that sense of trying to pull off something larger is, as I said, admirable, but I'm not quite sure that she pulls it off, at least in part because the event, that Algiers Motel middle sequence, and realizing that event, depicting it on screen, is so clearly to me what she cares about here and everything else kind of pales in comparison and I know this phrase gets thrown around too much but this is mostly a horror movie because of that Algiers motel sequence there are multiple victims being terrorized by a monster in this case the monster is a man it's a police officer and yes he does have some helpers but he's an officer played by Will Poulter and he is both the puppet master and the one inflicting the most physical and emotional abuse on those victims. And Bigelow sustains this terror for so long that as a viewer, I did just want it to stop. And I recognize that's absolutely the point of it. I wanted it to stop for the victims. I also wanted a release from the intensity of it as a viewer. And so there's part of me, Josh, that really credits Bigelow for being able to sustain that terror and for the visceral reaction she provoked in me and not shying away from it or trying to sanitize the event in any way. But on another level that's harder to express and maybe over the course of the discussion, we can hash it out a little bit. I was turned off by it. I think in the context of the film as a whole, and this really doesn't come into focus for me or it didn't come into focus for me until we get to the end of that sequence and we do see how the rest of the film plays out. It was almost as if the movie's only reason for existence was to render that horror and subject us to it. It's shot in the same handheld documentary style as those early scenes on the street where the riot's breaking out. It's claustrophobic in its use of close-ups. There's really no room to breathe outside the frame. And there's something about it that just seemed to me so calculated that it became almost creepy in a way. And I don't know if exploitative is the right word, but that's a word I've been kicking around in my mind. And I don't know if it's because of the fact that once we get into that motel and the chaos really gets to its most extreme, that we lose sight of the characters a little bit and some of the relationships that have been built up up to that point in the film. I'm not sure. I just know how it left me feeling. And certainly by the time we get to the aftermath of it, 
everything about the courtroom portion of this film could not be more rote and obligatory and frankly unnecessary. And it left me walking out of the film feeling more disappointed than anything else. Yeah, I had a really difficult time wrapping my hands around this movie, and I eventually landed fairly close to where you are, and I'm glad you're still processing it as well, Mm because I'm trying to work out certain things. The best I've been able to come up with so far is that something felt queasy or problematic about the sociological overview that the movie takes overall and it does start quite large there's a i think it's like an animated sequence at the beginning that starts with a very basic overview of the great migration and then white flight from cities in response in the north and kind of sets that up and then jumps into this history active history that we're seeing in 1967 on these couple of days and I don't know, I guess here's one element that that bothered me. So that first portion, also very strong directorial hand. You can see Bigelow's use of the handheld camera. That's where the immediate very comes Ackroyd, from. Very the cinematographer. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, similarly strong as the other films of hers that we've admired. But what that really emphasizes, and I want to emphasize, I think this is completely unintentional, but it emphasizes something that the movie itself nods to, but still participates in. The supposed criminality of the residents. So by giving us all, and I understand why they did that, because these are action scenes of things burning and Mm -hmm. windows breaking and people running around. You can see why a filmmaker gravitates towards that. But again, when you're trying to present this larger sociological overview, it's really repeating what was part of the problem of the media coverage of that time is not asking why is why has this community gotten to a place where this is a legitimate response? That's the important question. Instead, mm-hmm. it's depicting for the good first third of its running time this lawlessness, to use words that certain politicians will use. And it's falling into the same trap, I think. So that's one problem I have. Now, you zero in in that second section, which is its own film. Yeah. And you're right. It's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And I think to its credit – Bigelow is using every power of cinema to put us in that moment. There's immediacy there, and I think it works. But it also falls into a trap that relates to this larger overview. It kind of buys into the few bad apples theory of police brutality. We're given monsters, a particular monster in Will Poulter and these Mm -hmm. two other cops who follow him. And that also left me feeling a little queasy where it's this sense that, well— If they had just run into not these guys, but maybe the guy who helps a character at the end of that sequence who says, here, here, I'll take you to the hospital, this wouldn't have happened, okay? And layer that into the fact that the movie is trying to also be a statement about the state of race relations. That's where I think its footing gets a little uneven. Now, I I will say that court sequence, which I think does take all the air out of the movie. It really does. Absolutely. But there is something of a corrective there because in how that case turns out, it at least nods to the fact that there is larger systemic injustice at play here at the highest level of American law. Mm-hmm. And so I like that they acknowledge that, right? It kind of counters the few bad apples. Yeah. Thing. And you're starting to get a broader picture. But in terms of drama, you've lost all the immediacy. You really have. So I, I think for me, it's just an unwieldy canvas that I admire as well. Mm-hmm. But these particular filmmakers were not quite equipped to 
do justice to this large story that they wanted to tell. Overall, though, I did appreciate the film, and I hope we can get into some of the performances, because for me, there was one performance in particular that essentially elevated the movie beyond these other concerns. But yeah. that, that's why, basically, I wanted to start there, because I left the movie the same way you did. It's like, what was off here? You know what? Right. And this is where I'm at now on it while still trying to narrow in a little more. Yeah, I do have a favorite performance as well. So I wonder if we will have some overlap there. I think it would not be surprising if we did, not only because I think the performance is so good, but because I think the movie kind of sets this character up as kind of the hero. I mean, in a lot of ways, it gives it gives heroes the wrong word. But what I mean is. This character that we'll talk about, maybe we should just go ahead and talk about it now, is the one played by Algie Smith. That's it. Larry. He's the lead singer of this group called The Dramatics. And the night that is supposed to be kind of the crowning moment of his life where they get discovered and they get a record deal. Now it's going to change his life forever. It turns out to be that night, but obviously in a terrible way, not in a triumphant way. It's a great performance on a lot of levels, but I also think that in terms of the writing and Bigelow's camera, it favors him in the story. He gets all the best moments in the film in terms of anything that does counter the horror of that night at the Algiers Motel, the end of the movie, and a scene on the stage right after everyone is told to leave and he doesn't get his chance to go out and perform, he still can't stop himself from going out there and singing. Now, without getting into too many details about the end of the film, I can tell you that as powerful as the final moments of this film were in terms of what we're seeing and more notably what we're hearing, and it does involve this character, there was something about that that even felt, to go back to the word I threw around earlier, exploitative. There was something about Bigelow and Bull in this moment trying to pick something in terms of singing in a church setting, something very identifiable with the black experience that felt very forced to me. We have a character here at the end of the film who has no money, no real power, no real promise, but he can express his sorrows through music. And somehow we're supposed to leave the theater feeling a little bit better about that. I don't know if that's how we're supposed to leave. I really I think we can see it as touch. tragic, too. Yeah, yeah. But there was still something that felt just a little too hopeful for me that, that rubbed me the wrong way. You know, the way that scene is set up, and th- this is history. I, I don't think we're really spoiling anything. But the way the scene is set up and he comes into the church and asks, you know, I applied for this church choir director position right. it, it, it that's a little clumsy right it comes out of nowhere it's the first time we've seen him in a while i think and yes the setup doesn't quite work but what i liked about it once we get to the sequence of him singing leading the choir and then he sings a solo is that it connects this through line of music his character has had from that stage sequence you mentioned where they're supposed to get their big break and it gets cut short i love the touch where the spotlight one spotlight goes Mm -hmm. out on him as he's singing and then we get another in the horror sequence we get another moment of music involving Larry Reed, this character where Will Poulter's cop demands that they all start praying and and basically says, I want to hear you pray or I'm going to kill you. And all the other characters start mumbling and Larry starts singing this really authentic, deeply felt, terrorized prayer. And I thought that was also a moment that stood out in burrowing into a specific personal experience. Mm -hmm. I think that's what some of those other larger overview sequences miss. It's something that Dunkirk was excellent at, I think, 
is giving us this first person immediate experience of what it might have been like in that situation. Yeah. That's where with Larry in this moment, you get a sense of what he was probably going through. And then there's the connection with the scene at the end with the church choir. What I liked about that is it acknowledged the personal cost of this night. This was not just a historical event. Mm-hmm. It was not just a sociological thing to study. This was something that ruined a guy's life. He's not able to rejoin the band because of post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, it's taken other lives. We've seen that. So you can say, well, at least he made it out alive. But there's something about following him through to the end there yeah. and seeing that you know, he may find some solace in singing at this church choir, but you better believe, because we see it in his performance, he'd rather be up on that stage. For sure. Yeah. Right? So he's a broken man. So I don't man. think he's a, bro- he's a broken man. And I liked that the movie did end there in a way that, you know, it, it didn't make me feel hopeful. And I didn't get the sense that it wanted me to feel hopeful. Um, and again, the performance itself by LG Smith does really carry it through. I, I was unfamiliar with him before. Yeah. And I like how he goes from this sort of sleepy-eyed charmer in the beginning scenes, and that gets stripped away from him. And then in this last sequence, how yeah. the guy just looks old and beaten down and sad, and you feel the cost of that night. Yeah, I think hopeful is maybe not the right word. Comfort, though. There's a little bit of comfort there. He which finds a place. Yeah, which has been earned, certainly, by that character and by all of us getting to that point in the movie, and yet there was something that had me kind of detached from it. One thing that did stand out to me, and I don't know if this overlaps with what you were talking about in terms of the way Bigelow shows the riots and some of the specific actions that the people in the street are carrying out But one thing I did appreciate about the film is the way Bigelow takes the time to show people actively making decisions and actively making decisions not to get involved. So we have both sides of that and both carry weight. So, for example, there's a scene very early where we actually watch a character go over, pick up something off the street and break that first window that starts the riots. It's not about blaming anything on that one character. We've certainly seen a lot building up to that point that justifies that outburst of violence. But it isn't a case where Bigelow shoots it as if all of a sudden a riot broke out. No, a character made a decision to express himself. And that was kind of the first domino that fell in this process. A character shooting the gun that causes the police to come over to the Algiers Motel. I'm guessing based on the postscript with this film and the facts and different versions of events swirling around this case, that that could have been handled in a lot of different ways. And she makes the decision, Bigelow and Bull, as the screenwriter, to show us the character Carl, who's played by Jason Mitchell, very good as Eze in Straight Outta Compton, go over and express his anger with the starter pistol gun and aim it and fire it at the police and the National Guard. But then, as I said, on the flip side, you have the characters who choose not to get involved. And that's even more damning in some ways. And I think when you were talking about the few bad apples theory, I think that does come through a little bit. The counter to that would be the way Bigelow does show some of those more systemic 
forces at work. And that extends to, for example, the state police Who just rolling leave. up on this scene. Yeah. And it's not as if they kind of show up and then Bigelow just shows them pull away. No, they get a full report from someone on what's going on and they're told what's going on inside is really bad. And the answer to that for them is not to go in and stop the badness, but right. to go, we don't want to get involved. And they turn and leave. And of course, the most horrific stuff comes after that. There is also the National Guardsman character. And I think John Boyega's character, who we can probably talk about, factors into this a little bit as well, who kind of play observers and cross that line into active participants, the National Guardsman more than Boyega's character, Melvin. But they both end up watching and not acting at times where we as viewers want them to, even if we know it's probably futile. But I did appreciate the way Bigelow chose to emphasize those moments and those key decisions to take action and not take action. Yeah. And another example of that is in the riot sequence, the guy who has groceries and gets chased down and shot in the back and we follow him. And that... yeah. I like that where we stick with one character mm-hmm. for a while. And this is a guy we don't, I don't believe, ever see again, right? After this sequence. No, we don't. But we're we with hear about his him. story, right? We know why he chose to do what he did, what happened to him afterwards. And he's not just a face in the crowd stealing groceries. So, yeah, to be fair, there are moments that counteract a little bit more of this newsreel footage approach to the riots. And that, that's the other thing is there's actual newsreel footage in this, too. Yes. Which I think saps a little bit of the immediacy I agree. of it. Yeah. I agree. And I think at the end of the film, as we talked about, once we get into newspaper clippings, right. telling the story of the legal proceedings, then it's almost as if the movie's on autopilot. Yeah. That, that's, that's a really good phrase to describe the end of this. So Boyega, he's billed as... You know, the most well-known name, I would say, who's in this. Very much an ensemble cast, though. I don't think he gets any more screen time than anyone else. I didn't know what to make of this character. And I think it's a good performance. I think when he gets to hold the scene for more than maybe 20 seconds, you get a sense of, why this guy is doing yeah. what he when he's not doing. just standing he's, over someone's shoulder yeah, looking looking you know he this is a guy in a very precarious position hired as the security guard to protect is it a uh, hardware store or yeah or it, a grocery store a type small, place yeah small family-owned business and so he's in uniform one detail i do like about the movie is that contrast between this is his second job so he's in uniform the security guard uniform and he has a, a sense of authority there right even the national guardsmen let him talk and wait to hear what he has to say. Yeah. But then we see him later when he's in another uniform. His second job is at some sort of factory and he's wearing a jumpsuit and like it very much mimics a prison jumpsuit. Right. Yeah. Even though he's wearing it for that particular job. And I just like how I, it seems like the movie's very aware of how to even shoot him depending on what uniform he's wearing. Mm -hmm. And even before the things that happen to him while he's wearing that work jumpsuit happen, you get a sense of where it's going because of his costume design. Anyway, Boyega is, I just feel like he's not well served by this character. It's, mm-hmm. it's one that we, an example of where we don't stick with enough to really get a grasp of what's going on with him. He's he's left to be this somewhat complicit, somewhat victimized guy mm-hmm. who never really registers. No, he doesn't. And I've thought about this a lot and I haven't really come up with a solid answer. And I think that's because partly because of the type of character he's playing, which is he is someone that as a viewer, I think we're supposed to find 
problematic, for yeah. lack of a better word. We're supposed to see him as someone who is clearly just trying to do the right thing, who is trying to diffuse tension, who is he's helping. Survive. Doesn't he, he say that exactly? At one point? We and just he's, he's trying to night. help everyone yeah. in these scenarios just to keep violence from exploding. And how can you not respect that? At the same time. You could certainly see the argument of people within his specific community who might feel like he was a traitor to them. And the movie never really hints at that or it only hints at it. And then all of a sudden at the end of the film, he's just aligned, not by choice, but the movie aligns him and the legal proceedings align him with the real bad guys, with the real monsters of the story. And it's not it's not explored enough to really make any sense of it. I think it's jarring in a really unintentional way and i feel like there was probably a lot cut out that kept it from making more sense but we see him at one point being interrogated and as viewers we immediately start to consider what's probably going on here and thinking he's the one who's going to get blamed for all this stuff and then all of a sudden he's he's in court and he's a cop he's being treated as a cop just like the white cops right which if you think back on everything that happened there's some logic to that but i think it's again kind of shocking in the moment to see that without a little bit more context. And I think that, again, just kind of speaks to the last 20 to 30 minutes of this film really not working at all. I should say, too, that interrogation scene is another example of recognizing systemic problems at work here, where sure. all of a sudden it turns on him, and he's very good in that scene. Fellas, uh -huh. you know, sometimes when a black guy is put in a position of authority, other black guys, they like to single you out. Hey, because I'm not supposed to tell him what to do. When we have these conversations, we do them in stages, okay? Stage one, witnesses. Stage two, suspects. What stage are we in? You don't know what stage we're in? No, could you specify for me? Yeah, we're in stage two. You're a suspect. You see the light bulb go on for him. Yes. About because he's still when he gets brought in for he thinks as a witness. Yeah. He's still playing that game that walking he's still playing the line kind of like they're on the game, same right? side. Yeah. Until exactly. he realizes they're or, not or on the same side. You know, he's closer to their side. Right? Exactly. He's, he's always very careful not to, mm -hmm. to get too too close. Um, but yeah, that's terrifying when he realizes the game that they're playing with him and that clicks and you can all see that on Boyega's face a really nicely subtly played mm -hmm. moment from him so what did you think of Will Poulter as well, the main bad guy where did you, you come know, out it's effective because you're terrified of him he does what's asked of him I'm afraid it's the sort of role you never recover from as a young actor. You know, I mean, really, he's he's going to be that guy because he is so awful. Yeah, he's playing such a terrible person. I guess we have to give him points for that. He's committed to the role. I, exactly. Like, I think he does what the movie wanted him to do. I, you know, it, it does play into that idea for me that this guy, that racism is a boogeyman. And here's our boogeyman. Uh, I just think... For a more locally focused film, perhaps, maybe for the film that was just at the Algiers Hotel, just that night, you know, something that was admittedly constricted, it wouldn't be so much of a problem. But the fact that the movie is also trying to be this larger statement is where it bothers me that so much of the burden of racism was placed on that guy's shoulders. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think you could look to a scene very early in the film where he's being 
I suppose, reprimanded or in theory being reprimanded, being questioned anyway about a decision that led to a black man's death. And what does the detective tell him to do? He basically says, OK, get on out there. Go back yeah, out there, but, but he you know, be a like, little more careful next it, time. What's weird about that scene is because they enable it. He they do end up enabling it as a matter of the narrative. But I thought there would be a repercussion coming because yeah, that guy acts like there's something that's going to we got to root you out. You know, that that's you see that supervisor and think, OK, this guy understands what's going on. Well, they did ultimately bring him up on charges. So they did ultimately for la- come for down later against actions, him. Though, Right. Yeah. But. I imagine those events probably played into it. But at the time, in all the chaos, they don't tell him to turn his they badge in. The they don't suspend right. him. They say, get back onto the streets. I appreciated the performance. I think Michael Phillips, I think I saw a comment from him in his review that he thought Poulter was miscast. And I'm not sure I agree. I think that there was something to the decision to cast someone in Poulter who seems so inoffensive, who looks so young and so boyish. And that does a little bit, Josh, for me, counteract the the weight of the monster he's playing. I think even it comes through at times with him that even though he is clearly a racist character, I'm not sure he really fully comprehends on any level his prejudice. He wouldn't describe it to someone else as well, a sure. form of prejudice. Of right? course not. But what I like about that is there are a lot of movies with villains who are portrayed very much as villainous. And in his mind, he's no different than a lot of other people in this film. He's just doing the right thing. He always thinks he's doing the right thing. So even though he is at times sadistic, without a doubt, I don't know that you can write him off as simply being a sadist. And I don't think that the Poulter character plays that angle up. In his mind, he has an objective and he's just doing whatever it takes to meet that objective. He's on the right side of the law. And I think that comes through enough to to balance a little bit the monster that he's playing. I think there's some logistic issues, too, with his character. Why suddenly he has ultimate authority when there are all these other bodies coming in? And then, and this is also the Boyega character. You start to wonder, and obviously these are based on factual events, so yeah. that guy was there. but. The way the movie explains his presence never fully makes sense. It doesn't. His, you don't believe that the they would just let him stand there as well, often right. as he and, does. And why, like, the store he's guarding is blocks away. Yeah. I. You even wonder, well, what caused him to investigate? And then he's been so adamant about, we're just here to watch this store. This is our job. Mm-hmm. This is all we got to do. And then he spends the rest of the night over there. Again, historically, there's probably a very good reason. Not questioning that but the way it's staged in the film you're always like why is he still well it does kind of come off as curiosity i mean really i don't know that there is a better explanation exactly right that yeah so that is detroit it opened in limited release last weekend it is out in wide release starting this weekend if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net so massacre theaters next and if we do it right adam listeners should have only one response wow That's coming right up, along with our top five films of 1967. Stay with us.
Hey, Ridley. Yeah. You got any beamings? I might have me a stick. Well, loan me some, would you? I'll pay you back later. Fair enough. I think I see a plane over here with my name on it. Now you're talking. Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager in one of my all-time favorite movies, The Right Stuff. Shepard passed away on Monday. He was 73 years old. This is pretty raw for us, Josh. We're taping this on Monday night. He was nominated for an Oscar for that performance in The Right Stuff. Some other memorable roles, Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. He was in Midnight Special and Mud, working with Jeff Nichols and Blackthorn, where he played an aging Butch Cassidy. That film came out... I don't remember exactly what year, maybe five or six years ago. I saw it just because of my appreciation for Sam Shepard as an actor and an artist. And I recall liking the film, but I really love Sam Shepard's performance. Yeah, you know, as an on-screen presence, he had something you could almost call an everyman quality. But when we talk about another actor who passed away, Bill Paxton, he was like an everyman, everyman. And somehow Shepard was like a mythical everyman. Mythical is the word. it's, It's like... When you looked at him, he didn't exactly, he looked like another guy, but something about when he started moving and started talking mm-hmm. and his presence, he he elevated it to something that had the stature of myth to it. I really like the stuff he'd been doing in recent years with Jeff Nichols that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I could use more of him in Midnight Special where he was that cult leader. Very, very interesting performance. Yeah. Now, it dates us a little bit that we think of Sam Shepard first as an actor because that's how we came to him he was winning a Pulitzer Prize in 1979 for Buried Child we were not in kindergarten yet so for me it was the right stuff and then even Baby Boom with Diane Keaton it was a bunch of film roles before I got into high school and realized oh wait Chuck Yeager from the right stuff Mm -hmm. is this amazing revered playwright and it was then as I was getting more and more into theater, that I started reading True West and Buried Child and Curse of the Starving Class and Fool for Love. Seven plays, if you don't have it, highly recommend getting Sam Shepard. Seven plays, even in college, when I was a grad student, as a film student here in Chicago, we had a directing class where it was kind of like a theater directing class more than film, actually. It was about scene study and breaking down a scene by beats and directing your fellow students and being an actor in those scenes. And we had to do a final project where we directed some actual actors, not other students. And I chose a scene, could be from anything, could be from a movie, from a stage play, whatever. And I chose a scene from Sam Shepard's The Tooth of Crime because I loved it so much. But mythical is the word because I think of Sam Shepard as honestly one of my artistic heroes. And the more I thought about that word hero, it seemed like a very loaded term, but it seems so appropriate because He was mythical in nature. It seemed like he had a type of status and presence and talent that was unattainable to us mere mortals. That's how I really did view Sam Shepard. And I think that's maybe why he was so good as Chuck Yeager, too, because if you think back on the right stuff, that's the character he's playing. He's playing in Yeager someone who is outside of the system. You have the Mercury 7 astronauts who are being lauded the world over for their accomplishments. He's the only, as he sees it in some ways, the only pilot really among them. He is this legendary figure. And somehow Sam Shepard just brought that really easygoing kind of charisma and even charm at times. But there was just something always 
ingraspable about him, if that's even a word, Josh. Yeah, he, he kind of lived into the legend that he presented at the very start, I guess, when you look back at, at all that he did accomplish over his career. Yeah. We also want to note the passing also today as we're taping this of Jean Moreau, 89 years old. And this will come up a little bit in our top five, but I was thinking of Moreau a lot as I watched a recent French film because it has a direct reference in it to Truffaut's Jewels and Jim, where, of course, she is the central female character in that love triangle. She's also known for Louis Malle's Elevator to the Gallows and The Lovers. And in a series of films I love from Michelangelo Antonioni, she's in La Note. And we saw her work recently in Luis Buñuel's Diary of a Chambermaid. That was part of our Buñuel Marathon earlier this year. Yeah, she was, as the servant there, it was funny. She's She's got that whole house wrapped around her finger, right? And it was kind of a, a pleasure to just see her mess with her employers. And Jules and Jim, she's she's like the, I guess, anchor and the centrifugal force, really, mm-hmm. of that movie. So fantastic talent. Absolutely. A quick note about next week as we get into a little bit of housekeeping. We will not have a new show. We're all taking a week off. I will be heading on vacation with the family. The following week, we are looking at reviewing The Glass Castle. It's an adaptation of... Of Jeanette Wall's best-selling memoir. It stars Brie Larson, Woody Harrelson, and Naomi Watts. How's that for a cast? Just putting Woody Harrelson and Naomi Watts together is one of my dream pairings. Brie Larson, of course, very good as well, and she's reteaming with her short-term 12 director, Dustin Cretton. So I believe his follow-up to that, he hasn't made another film in between, has that he? That sounds right. Yeah. Okay. Also on that show, we are planning to have a conversation with the Safdie brothers. They are directors of the new film Good Time, starring Robert Pattinson. It had its debut at Cannes earlier this year. And somehow, somehow, we're going to come back from vacation, Josh, and we are supposed to kick off our brand new film spotting marathon. Should be easy. You've got a whole extra week to prepare. (laughs) That's right. So I have a little bit more on that marathon as we announce the titles that will make up that lineup here in a moment. But we have some movie passes to give away, including passes to The Glass Castle. There is an advanced screening before its August 11th release date, The Only Living Boy in New York. Also, passes available and a couple more, Josh, that are available if you go now to the events page at filmspotting.net. You can find it Quite simply, if you go to filmspotting.net or you can go directly to filmspotting.net slash events. That's where you also find our current poll. We're asking you to name the most valuable player in the Steven Soderbergh repertory company. (laughs) And here's who we're including in that company. George Clooney, Matt Damon, Michael Douglas, Benicio Del Toro, Julia Roberts, and of course... Channing Tatum. So try to pick out of that group. This is our second poll in a row after the Charlize versus Keanu poll, where things aren't playing out the way you anticipated, Adam? No, not for me. I don't know how you handicapped this poll question, but... I just usually always assume I'm right. That's how I handicapped it. Well, that's my problem, too. In this case, we both went with Matt Damon. We did. I thought, though, Channing Tatum and recency bias with the Magic Mike movies. I know Soderbergh didn't direct the second one. I still thought... Tatum would somehow win this. And as of right now, George Clooney running away with it. What? Yeah. Now that's a surprise. Okay. So if people want to alter that, you can still vote at filmspotting.net. I also wanted to quickly mention that I am going to be heading out to the Foot Candle Film Festival. We've mentioned them before here on the show. This is taking place September 22 to 24 in Hickory, North Carolina. Showcase for independent films, and they were kind enough to ask me to come and be part of the fun. I'm going to speak at their closing night awards ceremony. What are you going to speak about? I I have no idea yet. And this is September 24. Okay. Come on. I've got weeks. I'd already be freaking out, so... I didn't say I wasn't freaking out. Here, this should intrigue you, though. Last year, they screened 
Keith Maitland's Tower at Foot Candle Film So they have very good taste. Obviously, that was kind of what sealed the deal for me if they screened your favorite film of last year. So if you're interested, if you live in the area and want to check it out, all the information is at footcandlefilmfestival.com. We'll link to that in the show notes. The new marathon. We are finally diving into the cinema of Argentina. Our marathons are our excuse to go deep into the work of an artist or of a certain era or a certain region. And we are basically trying to fill in the gaps in our movie educations. We have done actually somehow about 35 of these over the years. And they've proven to be invaluable. Hugely uneducated. Yes. The really frustrating After 35 of them, we still have these huge blind (laughs) spots. But you're going to hear in my top five here in a little bit how many movies came from film spotting marathons. That was the impetus for seeing many of these films that I now adore. This new one will be our third this year. We did career spanning marathons of not only Luis Buñuel, but also Agnes Varda. This marathon will be part of our continuing partnership with the online streaming service Mubi, cult, classic, independent films from around the world. Every day, Mubi's experts introduce you to a film they love, and then you have a whole month to watch it. So there are always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. And listeners of Film Spotting, you can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's Mubi.com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. So for this marathon, we're going to focus on a few contemporary auteurs from Argentina. All these films are post-2000, and we'll get to the directors here, Josh, as we get to the lineup. First up is Mariano Ginas and his film Extraordinary Stories. Now, we are only doing five films in this marathon instead of six, as we usually do, but that's because... We're really doing six films, extraordinary stories. Now stick with us here. Stick with us. Don't panic yet. It's four hours long. There, there's no way a four-hour movie you're from 2008. Get this. But I'm just so excited to see it. It's playing at Mubi. They're huge on it. It's apparently very hard to get your hands on. So this is a real opportunity for people to see it. A very well-regarded movie. The plot is secret identities, missing persons, lost treasures, exotic beasts, and desperate criminals are only a few of the elements woven into a grand tapestry of mysteries. Sounds great. It does. I'm perfectly willing to take the vacation day to sit down and watch You'll have to. I I know you're going to do it in about 18, 10-minute installments. And I'm sure it'll... As Gina surely expected. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Just as well for you. But, you know, I'm glad... I'm glad we're going to take this on. That's what these marathons are for, right? That's right. Okay. That movie is available exclusively on movie starring August 8th. Next up, a film from Alejo Moishansky. His film Castro from 2009. Four characters looking for a man called Castro, but we don't know why. That also available exclusively on movie starting August 14th. And these are the two that really instigated this from Martel La Cienaga. This is from 2001, the life of two women and their families in a small provincial town of Salta, Argentina. And then from 2008, The Headless Woman, which I'm ashamed to say I think is the only title I was aware of previously among all of these. So obviously a hole in my film education. Yeah, I'm with you there, sadly, Josh. And I will note that La Cienega is a film that is available via Criterion Collection. You can also see it via rental or streaming on many platforms. So after we get to a couple Martel films, we will have one film from Damien Cifrone, Wild Tales from 2014. It was nominated for the 2015 Best Foreign Language Film Oscar. It's six short stories that explore the extremities of human behavior involving people in distress. We haven't had enough distress here in our reviews lately, Josh. This marathon will begin with the show that airs Friday, August 18th. So we're giving you a couple weeks to catch up with Extraordinary Stories. And as we mentioned, it starts August 8th, streaming on Mubi. 
We will link to the complete lineup and more information about all these films, including where you can see them at filmspotting.net. Just click on marathons at the top of the page, or you can go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. We did get a lot of feedback with a lot of great suggestions. Wild Tales was one of the common films that came up in those listener suggestions. We had to overlook a lot of the options for various reasons, including The Secret in Their Eyes was a movie that many suggested we see. We've both seen mm-hmm. that film. And Nine Queens was another one that came up quite a bit that you've seen, our producer Sam has seen. And so we decided to go in a different direction and really focus on just those those three or four key Argentinian directors. It should be fun. We hope you will play along with us. Again, all the information at filmspotting.net. All right, it is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a prize. A couple weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. You are going a tad fast, officer? Yes, you were, Mr. Blower. Well, now, you see, we are staging a homage to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and I'm a little late for the dress rehearsal. <clears throat> I'm playing the eponymous hero, you see. Romeo, not Juliet. <laughs> what are you writing? Everything you're saying, I might need to refer to it later. Now, officer, I'm a respected solicitor, so there's no need to... Just stop writing, will you? I, Look, I'm merely trying to explain why I might have exceeded the speed limit. You're playing the male lead in a homage to William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and you're late for the dress rehearsal. You think this is sufficient reason to travel at 48 in a 30 zone? Well, I... To flout speed limits specifically oh. put in place to save lives. This, look, this is preposterous. Pre... Posturous. Look, stop writing! Stop writing. <clears throat> Look, you're right. I apologize. So you've got David Threlfall as Martin Blower, along with Simon Pegg's Nicholas Angel and Hot Fuzz from 2007. Pegg wrote the screenplay alongside director Edgar Wright. That massacre was part of a show that also included our review of Dunkirk and our top five of 2017 so far. We recorded it live in Spring Green, Wisconsin. Well, our top five, not Massacre Theater. That's right. The connections. Well, there are many. Jordan Falk said, I can't think of any connection beyond the Britishness of both this and Dunkirk. Are there some cast connections I missed? I loved Hot Fuzz when it came out as a good follow-up to Shaun of the Dead. Maybe that's the connection since George Romero was discussed on the episode? Anyhow, those accents were as far from British as anything I've ever heard, and I expect nothing less from Massacre Theater. So, well done? We do what we can. We accept praise with question marks. We really do only what we can. Luke McDonald says an obvious tie-in is all of the discussion about Edgar Wright's newest film, Baby Driver, which shares many elements with Hot Fuzz, including the use of music. But another connection is that the description of the location in Wisconsin where you tape the top five sounds quite similar to Hot Fuzz's quaint yet twisted (laughs) setting of Sanford. I have yet to see the twisted side of Spring Green. That's true. Three summers and I'm waiting for it to emerge. (laughs) Maybe we're there just too brief an amount of time, Josh. We'll find it. Stuart Feldstein from, is this right, Bondurant, Iowa? Bondurant. Bondurant, A mere 25 Iowa. miles from my hometown. I was so close. Stuart got the connection we were thinking of. The only connection to the podcast I can think of is the production of Romeo and Juliet in the film and the production of A Midsummer Night's Dream that you saw in the village of Sanford. I mean, Spring Green. <laughs> there you go. Were there any unexplained horrible deaths while you guys were there? Any living statues? Any great big bushy beards? Again. The twisted side not coming through. Oberon. Oberon had a big bushy beard. That's that's accurate. Mm-hmm. John Randall Reeves in Richmond, Virginia has a few more tie-ins. Nick Frost talks a lot about Keanu in Hot Fuzz. There are point break references. That ties in with our Keanu and Charlize poll question. Another tie-in, Dunkirk, is directed by Christopher Nolan. 
like Wright, a Brit. Nolan interviewed Wright at a recent DGA event. You can hear it on a recent episode of the podcast, The Director's Cut. Further connections with Dunkirk, both directors wrote and directed their films. Both Baby Driver and Dunkirk were long-term germinating ideas for the filmmakers. Both Wright's and Nolan's current movies are follow-ups to films with intergalactic-slash-alien elements, Interstellar, and The World's End. Nicely done. God, our listeners are good. One more note here from Bethany Dickens. I recently rewatched Hot Fuzz and was struck by how relevant this film has become in our current political landscape. The last time I watched it, in 2008, the idyllic town of Sanford seemed worlds away, and the motivations of the people living there seemed to be equally removed from reality. Now, the xenophobia of my own country makes me rethink this wonderful movie as required viewing. It is a great conversation starter for the perils and pitfalls of nostalgia, dog whistle racism, and mainstream reactions to subversive art. Such an enriching experience to view this film in 2017. And of course, it's hilarious and wonderful and a bloody good time, literally. So I didn't think about Hot Fuzz as a film that would have really any relevance here in 2017. But Bethany, we appreciate your take. Josh, this was one of the most entered massacre theaters in a long time. Wow. And that surprises me on one hand, because as I said, I think to you and Sam before we did the performance, there was nothing really about it that identified it with kind of the plot mechanics of Hot fuzz. Right. There's nothing would just jump out to someone, for example, who hasn't seen the movie maybe more than once. But then we did use actual names from the characters in the film. Are you suggesting there was some illegal Googling? Going I would on? never. I would never suggest that. Because our listeners wouldn't know. No, do just that. huge fandom. And the name immediately sparked the title of the film, of course. So reach into that brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Matt Greenberg. He's from Comac, New York. You're going Comac. Comac, C O M A C K. Okay. Matt, wherever you're from in New York, email us feedback at filmspotting.net to claim your very own film spotting t-shirt. What do I know? I'm lucky to get the part. I know that. I come from Chicago. We do things a little differently out there. We do the play as written. That doesn't go over in New York. Terrific. We move along to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, and the only hint I think we will give you, at least up front here, is that the tie-in, at least the one we're thinking of, should not be immediately apparent to you at this point in the show. Popular film, tough tie-in. Yeah. I think is how we describe this yeah, Massacre Theater. you'll get it. You'll understand the tie-in when you listen to the whole show. There but right go. now, it's okay. probably not really going to click. It may click when you hear... One of the performances and Josh, well, clearly, who's, who's who? clearly based on the fact that you gave us a little taste of your vocal work in the tease. You've been practicing this all day long, haven't you? Uh, no, that was my first practice. But you want that part? You, you claim you could have done it better. So I think you should I think you should take. This I don't part. think better was the word I used. <laughs> what was it? I think. Worse, but funnier okay. were the exact words I used. <laughs> well, that's what we're going for. So, uh... And hey, if I, if I totally blow it, if you don't think that it's worse, but funnier, okay. we'll just do it your way, too. We'll do both versions. We'll no, give, no, no, no. We'll give I'm listeners not, the I'm taste of both. overtime. <laughs> Far be it from me to think that, Josh. All right. So that means you're up first. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. And action. Wow, how can a guy like you quit at the top of your game? You think I quit? Right. Your big wreck in 54. They quit on me. When I finally got put together, I went back expecting a big welcome, and you know what they said? Your history. Moved right on to the next rookie standing in line. 
There was a lot left in me. I never got a chance to show him. I keep that to remind me never to go back. I just never expected that the world would find me here. Wow. Insane. That was brutal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That was really bad. (laughs) It was. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 21st. Also, you did some ad-libbing there. That's not allowed. A little. I went off script not a little bit. allowed. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. There are official Massacre Theater rules now. Adam stayed up late to put those on the website. That's filmspotting.net. We just wanted to jump in with a couple quick thank yous this week. And I feel bad because I'm going to thank Zach Kircher, who sent us a wonderful card in the mail. And Josh, I forgot it. Come on. So I can't remember what he said. I'm going to have to feature it on another show. We do thank you, Zach, for your support of Film Spotting. We also got a Silver Club donation from Keith Geiger in Ocean City, Maryland. We have heard from Keith many times over the years. He's been a longtime donor and supporter, and he notes that he was fortunate enough to hold another film camp this summer, his third annual I've Seen That Film Camp, wherein we avoid the beach, the heat, the ocean, and the tourists, and we sit inside for a week watching and discussing movies. What could be more fun? Here was their lineup, Josh. On Monday, they did The Bicycle Thief and Pather Panchali. That was their neo-realism pairing. Then they went to Singing in the Rain and Sing Street for musicals. I'm on board. Wednesday was The Night of the Living Dead and The Thing. Thursday, The Matrix and Mad Max Fury Road. And then they ended the week with three comedies, Dr. Strangelove, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and Airplane. That seems like a good note to go out on with those three films. It was so much fun, Keith says, and as always, if I get paid, then it's only fair that I throw a few dollars your way. After all, if not for film spotting, the camp would simply not have happened. Thanks for all the inspiration you've given me over the last 10 years or so. We do appreciate it, Keith, and we're glad to hear that this is now becoming a tradition, an annual one. We hope that the fourth one next year is also a big hit. We also got a buck a show donation, Josh, and this is our last one. Josh Taylor in Dallas, a couple of listeners we've featured over the past few months. They've been doing this. Jesse Marsh is the other one. They've been going through the back archive, the entire catalog of the show, and are just now getting up to speed. They've been doing it chronologically. So Josh sent us this note. Hey, guys. Bucka Show donor Josh in Dallas here. It took me two and a half years, but I finally made it through the entire back catalog of film spotting. To celebrate, I put together the enclosed MP3s. I hope you enjoy it. And if what I've done compels Sam to come out of retirement to give me a nickname, I would be forever honored. So he did send us these MP3s, and they're long, and we're not going to get to play them on the show. But we thought we had to say thank you to Josh for accomplishing this amazing feat by at least acknowledging his top five film spotting moments. He said that he gleaned these from about 20 that he had noted and time stamped along the way through the archives. Sam posed a good question, Josh. Is 20 highlights in 12 years of podcasts a good number or a bad number? Let's just hope he stopped there, that he's got oh. like a hundred highlights. I don't know about that. Right? And and these were <laughs> I'm <not> just... Sure. <laughs> I'm not sure, but his top five, his number five was what he refers to as the behind the curtain moment where I lost it on Sam for having the audacity to include that week's Massacre Theater in his top five list. Oh, yeah. That would not go over well with you. <laughs> it's so funny because I heard it today. And if you think about the number of cinematic sins Sam committed over his tenure on the show, that would be like number 497. And yet I acted like 
he killed my dog. Yeah, I know. I can totally <laughs> see it. And I can't wait to do it someday. Yeah, it's going to happen. His number four and three massacre theater performances by none other than Josh Larson. He says, there's not much more I can add except to lavish praise on the massacre theater stylings of Josh. Both of these make me laugh uncontrollably pure genius wow the limey and jaws i don't remember <laughs> okay. why those were so funny uh I, I think i remember jaws i don't recall the limey at all because what i thought i want why what i thought i would think about with something else <laughs> i didn't give a toss it didn't matter see hey Man. i'm glad i can contribute something well they couldn't have been that great because one of my massacre theater turns beat them at what? number two. Oh, come on. And we all know, Adam, you're no slouch in the Massacre Theater Department either, specifically your impression of Jimmy Stewart, which honestly just gives me life. <laughs> I forgot that I did, Jimmy Stewart. Where are you now? Here. With you. And it's all real. It's not merely as it was a hundred years ago, a year ago, or six months ago, or whenever it was you were here to see it. Now, think of when you were here. His number one is something I didn't even remember where I took something Sam said off air to describe something directors sometimes do that makes him mad. Basically a phrase that okay. sums up when a director, it's a variation on sort of like, I felt like they punched me in the face okay. only okay. more vulgar. Oh, and yes. And I decided that I needed to use that phrase to describe the movie North country. <laughs> Of all films. Well, so someone, we're just going to leave it at that. Someone needed to take North Country down, Adam. <laughs> it, it was only a matter of time, wasn't it, Josh? Well, Josh Taylor in Dallas, in honor of you making it through the entire back catalog and sending us those moments, Sam has decided to come down from his throne and bestow upon you one of your very own film spotting Sam Van Halgren nicknames. You are now known as Josh, always the brisket, never the bread, Taylor. I don't know if it was worth the wait. Worth <laughs> all the work. The poor guy. I know. Two and a half years. Hi, Adam and Josh. This is Kevin White from Carroll Stream, Illinois. I'm sure you guys are going to get into all the most important films from 1967, like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde and Cool Hand Luke. But I wanted to highlight one of the weirdest films from that year, uh, Roger Corman's The Trip. This one stars Peter Fonda, Bruce Dern, Dennis Hopper, and Susan Strasberg, and is a strange, wonderful ride. Uh, Peter Fonda's character decides to experiment with LSD under the supervision of Bruce Dern's guide, who is meant to keep him safe and grounded while he hallucinates. Of course, he runs off into seedy 60s Los Angeles and has bizarre encounters and weird visions cribbed directly from Bergman. Uh, the trip is all at once an anti-drug PSA, a pro-drug PSA, uh, and a relic from the height of the summer of love that those of us who were born too late can only experience secondhand. As someone who has never done drugs of any kind in his life, a movie like The Trip is the closest I can come to that experience. It's weird, funny, very 60s movie, and while I don't know if it quite holds up to the most essential classics of 1967, I recommend tracking it down and reveling in the counterculture for a while. Thanks, and keep up the great work. Can't wait to hear what you guys put on your lists. Kevin White from Carroll Stream, Illinois, getting us started with this week's top five. We talked about Detroit earlier in the show, a movie set in 1967. We thought we would take a look at our top five films from the year 1967. You heard Kevin drop some really big, notable titles on his way 
to Roger Corman's The Trip, a movie unseen by me and unseen by you. So alas, Josh, it will not make our list. Yeah, I'm sorry, Kevin. I had a few other titles ahead of it on the needs to be seen yet list. Okay, so let's find out what we have seen and what we love from the year 1967. Josh, what do you have at number five? Les Samurai is where I'm going at number five. This is Jean-Pierre Melville's hitman drama. And in trying to think of a way to describe the essence of this picture, because on the surface, it's just another hitman drama, I thought what it really has is the patience of European art cinema brought to bear on American pulp noir material. And then the result of those two things coming together in this way is just an otherworldly cool. That's the only way I can think of to describe it. Mm -hmm. The figures are familiar. We've got gangsters here, killers, nightclub musicians. But at least in my memory and even watching a few clips, they seem to move more slowly. They've got more grace and they certainly have more mystery, I think, than their American counterparts do. doesn't make them better Mm -hmm. to the noirs that this is riffing on, but it's definitely its own thing, more than even just an homage. That description, that mystery, I think, is especially true for the main character, the hitman of the title, played by Alain Delon. The defining scene for me in Le Samurai is the one of him slipping into that parked car, sets this ring of, I don't know, maybe 50 keys on this ring on the car seat next to him, and he just goes through them one by one, putting them in the ignition until he gets the one that starts the car just calmly drives away. Mm -hmm. And I love how he lights the cigarette at the end, sort of to congratulate himself because heaven forbid the guy smiles, right? Yeah. Or breaks an expression at all. But that's just one example of how so many of the scenes in this movie work. And I also wanted to quote David Thompson's Criterion essay because he, he captures this much better than I could. Tone and style are everything with Les Samurai, poised on the brink of absurdity, or a kind of attitudinizing male arrogance, Jean-Pierre Melville's great film flirts with that macho extremism and slips over into dream and poetry just as we grow most alarmed. So yeah, he he nails it there, mm-hmm. Thompson does, and I love Les Samurai. It's a great choice. My number five is In Cold Blood, the adaptation of Truman Capote's book, of course, of the same name, directed by Richard Brooks. It stars Robert Blake as Perry, Scott Wilson as Dick, and they, of course, are the two killers who went into the clutter home in a small town in Kansas and killed all four members of the family who were there, eventually were caught and tried and executed. And I would be better off, frankly, Josh, talking about the movie Capote starring Philip Seymour Hoffman than discussing in any detail in cold blood because I've seen it far more recently. And that film came out, I don't know, 10 or more years ago, but I'm really going off here, Josh, my first take on the film, which occurred more than 20 years ago. I saw this movie when I was in high school and I actually haven't revisited it. So it was kind of hard to leave in there at number five, but as a film that in its own very haunting, very eerie, in a way, scary way, just because of the horror that it does depict and the way it depicts it so straightforward. I suppose there's something about that that is even more horrifying than scary monsters who are doing unspeakable things to people. This this really happened. And there is a certain weight that comes with that. But again, haven't seen it in a very long time. And all I really think about when I think about In Cold Blood is 
the cinematography, the black and white cinematography, which was shot by Conrad Hall and Kenneth Turan writing, I think fairly recently, just in the past 10 years or so about In Cold Blood said the great glory of In Cold Blood from today's perspective is Conrad Hall's absolutely breathtaking widescreen black and white cinematography. In Cold Blood was one of Hall's 10 Oscar nominations, and his work here has to be one of the great widescreen efforts. Hall's bleak vision, his gift for working with darkness and rain, rivals classic film noir of the 40s and 50s in its visual mastery. And you definitely do glimpse that. And then I think about just the imagery of, for example, Robert Blake in that famous shot, that long soliloquy talking to the Capote stand-in about his father and his relationship to him as the rain is pounding against the glass. And it causes this shadow effect where it seems as if he's crying. And of course he's not, but it's the rain coming in off the window. I think it happened. I was eating a biscuit. He started yelling what a greedy, selfish bastard I was. Yelling and yelling till I grabbed his throat. I couldn't stop myself. He tore loose, got a gun. He said, look at me, boy. Take a good look. I probably could have talked myself into five or six other films in this number five slot, especially, as I said, since it's been so long since I've seen it. But it is a movie, and especially because of that scene and the look of the film that's always stuck with me. Yeah, that rain and window shot is one of those. Any documentary on cinematography, it's going to be in there or in textbooks about filmmaking, too. Certainly, certainly iconic. All right. I have an iconic figure and film, maybe not high enough up for you on my list. I'm pretty sure it's going to be on yours at four is Cool Hand Luke. And I've got kind of a shifting relationship with this film. Maybe that's why I have it at number four. This is Paul Newman in probably at least one of the archetypal stick-it-to-the-man movies, when you think of that subgenre. He plays Luke Jackson here, sentenced to a chain gang for defacing parking meters, and falls into this cycle of attempted escapes, beatings, other severe punishments. Uh, It's just sort of this purgatory that he finds himself in. He never fully gives in and becomes something of a patron saint of righteous defiance, really, to the other prisoners. There's so many memorable, quotable scenes here. Luke's bet that he can eat 50 hard-boiled eggs in an hour. The captain's declaration that he and Luke have a failure to communicate, maybe one of the most quoted lines in all of cinema. And then Luke singing Plastic Jesus. Get yourself a sweet Madonna dressed in Cranstone Sentinel of Shell. Going ninety, I'd scary, cause I got the Virgin Mary assuring me that I won't go to hell. So it's the religious symbolism that sometimes gets a little too heavy for me in this film. I know it's why a lot of people really are drawn Including to it. Including me. Yeah. And I, it's all there, you know. And thinking about it this time, didn't get a chance to rewatch the whole thing, but watching a few scenes, I'm shocked Mel Gibson hasn't remade this movie. You yeah. know, it just seems so perfect he suffers for a his, lot. his obsession with attaining religious ecstasy 
through physical suffering. It's like it's it's right there for him. I I hope he doesn't do it. <laughs> There's no need for that. But it did strike me as something he would really connect with. Of course, Newman embodies this mm-hmm. this stuff way more convincingly than Gibson ever could. The charisma is off the charts in this film with him. It's like the one where he decided he's just going to let it go full bore and not hold anything back in that department. He he's able to sell. It's like a holy rebel yell that Cool mm-hmm. Hand Luke offers, and, and Newman sells it. So I've got it here at number four. Well, he definitely sells it. And I do think it's fair to say that some of the imagery and symbolism of it, the Christ metaphors, are probably a little cumbersome and too on the nose. At the same time, for me, maybe this is why it hasn't occurred to Gibson yet to do it, is that you might be able to argue it's an affirmation of the notion of original sin, but it's also this defiant screed against the idea of original sin. He is a character who blames God, I think, in many ways for him being this misfit who mm. refuses to conform. Basically, he is the way he is because God made him the way he is. And that's the that's the battle throughout that whole film, that great film, Cool Hand Luke. Well, You've been stealing my thunder. It's a chance now for me with my number four to steal a little bit of your thunder, Josh. We both had some homework to do for this top five. Both of our assignments involve Catherine Deneuve. So how bad could that homework be? <laughs> Did your homework pay off? I liked it. Didn't crack the top five. Belle de jour. We're thinking of. Yes. So it's honorable mention for me, certainly in my top ten. Okay. Well, my homework was the young girls of Rochefort. And it's here at four? It's here at number four. Yay. Now, I sort of understood the Jacques Demy comparisons that were being thrown about, including on this show, when we talked about La La Land because of the Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which I saw 12 years ago as part of a musicals marathon on the show. I clearly understand the influence now. The opening scene of Rochefort on a ferry with these cars getting on the boat going across the water the arrival in the town square the colors of the car and the outfits and the music itself by Michelle Legrand Damien Chazelle kind of steals all of it for the beginning of La La Land. Well, I mean, the music is very similar. It the helps. melodies are. Th- that's true, but it also helps that Demi was stealing quite a bit from Hollywood. So Absolutely. It's all fair game. I'm not knocking him. <laughs> I would chalk it up to homage, very tasteful homage. One thing this movie has that I really loved that I think is different than a lot of Hollywood musicals is I would say generally the dancing is a lot less precise. Hmm. It's not about the perfection of the movements and the timing, which isn't to say that all the people we meet, and we're going to hear some of those names here in a minute, aren't wonderful performers, aren't great dancers or singers, but there's a sense of elegance to it. There's the notion of them just getting on that ferry and they've got time to kill, so they break out into a performance. It's, again, not really about hitting those specific marks perfectly, but just this outward expression of something that they feel. And I love that about the movie. Now, those faces and some of those performers, not only Catherine Deneuve, but her sister, Francois Dorleac, Gene Kelly appears, George Chakiris, the great George Chakiris from West Side Story appears. How about from our Luis Buñuel and Agnes Varda marathons, Michelle Piccoli, who I never would have known if it wasn't for those marathons, and from our Ophuls marathon, the mother in this film, Danielle Derrieux, just one of the great French performers ever. And the story, Josh, is just perfect for this sort of musical fantasy where you've got all these characters who have found and lost love or are looking for their true love. And the audience is always one step ahead 
of the characters and you're just praying that they'll finally connect the dots and everything will work out. And I think that that is a very satisfying experience as a viewer. I watched it with my daughter, Sophie. I thought that even though she loves singing in the rain and is generally into musicals, especially on stage, I was a little nervous, a little over two hours very French, you know, it might not be her thing to watch this musical with the subtitles, but she loved it. Nice. She loved it too. So we had a great experience. Now, am I right that you subjected your daughters to this and they didn't have the same transcendent cinematic experience that you have with this movie? Yeah, they liked it. And I think it was similar to Umbrellas too. I think it's the Frenchiness a little bit, you know, that that is something that unless you've seen a lot of films, that have those qualities sure. it takes a while to fully embrace so um but they did enjoy as i do you know the colors are fantastic mm-hmm. the dancing i think what you're talking about with the lack of precision it's everyone dancing in the, like everyone's dancing all over the place right right so it's not like necessarily focused on one precise dance number yeah it's just the people walking down the streets they're dancing mm-hmm. um, and so there's an there's an exuberance to this movie that is such a joy um, I think there's an exuberance to it that is far more evident than the exuberance on display in Sherbor, which is right. much more bittersweet. Absolutely. I think that would be a tougher sell for Sophie. was a tougher sell for me yeah, when I saw yeah. it a decade ago, but I did really love Rochefort. Yeah, and if I if I hold umbrellas a little bit higher, maybe it's because of that bittersweetness. Young Girls, actually, it's maybe number six for me. So What? Yeah, not going to be on this list. Oh, my. I'm glad you watched it, though. I thought it'd be your number one. No, 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 no. Um, umbrellas is the one, man. This, this is, yeah, this is good stuff. Absolutely okay. good stuff, but... You can have it for the top five. Great. Your number three. My number three, The Graduate. Really original, right? But you've got to have it on here. Mike Nichols' comic tragedy about a college grad. The way I think of this is he's a college grad who experiences adult disillusionment far sooner than he should have to. I mean, it's coming for the guy for sure, but does it have to be absolutely this soon? Of course, it's Dustin Hoffman's Benjamin Braddock. I'm talking about the boredom. He's suffering here leads to this affair with a friend of his parents that in turn dooms any chance he has of a relationship with her daughter whom he meets later. So this is, you know, essentially really soapy stuff, but it works as a generational statement at the same time coming out in 67. And it's absolutely elevated by the sheer filmmaking craft going on here. What Nichols pulls off in, I believe, his second film. I put The Graduate in the Citizen Kane category, not necessarily in terms of greatness, you know, equating their greatness, but in the sense that this is one of those movies that serves as a textbook example of how the cinema can function. You know, everything from editing to framing to the use of off-screen sound. This is another one of those where you'll find in Movie 101 textbooks broken down and you'll see in documentaries about film history, really more about the form of film. Among those iconic shots, the one that I always remember, the sight of the tiny Benjamin in the background looking trapped by that foreground image of Mrs. Robinson's leg as it arches across the screen. And of course, we've got Anne Bancroft as Mrs. Robinson. She employs seduction as uh, if it was a war tactic. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? What do you mean? You've known me nearly all your life. You must have formed some opinion of me. Well, I always thought that you were a very nice person. Did you know I was an alcoholic? What? Did you know that? 
Look, I think I should be going. Sit down, Benjamin. Mrs. Robinson, if you don't mind my saying so, this conversation is getting a little strange. Now, I'm sure that Mr. Robinson will be here any minute now. No. What? My husband will be back quite late. He should be gone for several hours. So she's great. Hoffman gives oh a performance that I think stammering young actors have been aping for decades and trying to make their mark with. So, yeah, undoubtedly, this is a classic. I'm putting it at number three, The Graduate. So I'm with you completely. It is a classic. And my problem was I thought it was just so obvious, Josh. And you're it right. Is. It's hard to go with these choices that you just think are kind of boring. And even though we had resolved up to now to not have exclusions, to not come up with reasons to leave movies out. We're just going to go with what our top five films of the year are, whatever year we're doing. I am now breaking all of that because I just realized that my list was just not going to be really any fun at all if I was talking about three of the obvious choices for best films of 1967. In fact, they were so obvious that the Academy got them right that year. So I excluded, I'm calling it my Pictures at a Revolution Memorial List Okay. in honor of Mark Harris and that great book that looks at the Best Picture nominees of 67 and the transformation of Hollywood that year from the old studio system to the new Hollywood. Bonnie and Clyde, In the Heat of the Night, and The Graduate. All three would be in my top five. And I think The Graduate is so good. In fact, we've had some discussion behind the scenes that maybe this is the time. Maybe The Graduate, the film that has provided a clip that has been in the opening of this This show (laughs) for almost its history. Yeah. Maybe it's time it goes into the Pantheon. I would say it's about time. Let's do it. So The Graduate, not eligible for me for this list, now not eligible for any list for either of us All right, for the rest of time. I'm glad I slipped it in there. Okay. My number three is a movie, Josh, that you already mentioned. It is Le Samurai, the film from John Pierre Melville. And you said it so well, maybe all I can do is read my quote from David Thompson and his oh, really? great Criterion essay. Nice. And this really gets to what you were saying, though, kind of the essence of the DeLong character. And that samurai figure that he's portraying and that European art house kind of flavor that comes through with his character versus some of the more traditional hard-boiled noir characters. He describes him as being suspended between the somnambulant calm of Lee Marvin in Point Blank and the self-destructive dedication that guides Robert Brisson's priest in Diary of a Country Priest. Yeah. And there really is no better description no. of Delon in that film than Brisson's Diary of a Country Priest character, Claude Ledoux, and Lee Marvin in Point Blank. He is simultaneously the coolest figure you've ever seen and maybe one of the most tragic figures that you've ever seen. And it was a character and a figure, that visage of DeLong with the fedora on, you may recall, I had as my number four movie tattoo oh, that I, I would remember get. That. Yes. So I am a big fan of this film that's had a huge influence on so many similar assassin hitman films after it from ghost dog the way of the samurai yeah. to that's the one thompson's the killer brought to mind for me is yeah the jarmusch film for sure yeah definitely so it's a classic and apparently i needed another french film here on my list we'll get to some american stuff here in a moment but i do love la samurai 
All right, number two. So there's been a lot of 70 millimeter talk lately with Dunkirk's release in that format. And by the way, if you're in the Chicago area, go see it in 70 millimeter at the Music Box Theater while you can. Well, one of the masterpieces of that format came out in 1967, Jacques Tati's Playtime. The large screen format was necessary. I can't imagine this movie without the large screen format to capture what Tati did here, build essentially entire false city blocks all in service of this spoof of modernity in in really its most conspicuous form. So we're talking about architecture, technology, transportation. That's the sort of canvas that he's working on here. In the film, we follow Tati as his Monsieur Hello character. He's wandering from the airport to an office to a shopping mall. And then in each of these set pieces, we get this sense that the individual is being just trampled by an efficient, organized, yet personless system. I do love how human chaos gets the last word, though, in the movie's climax. There's this hilariously disastrous opening of a new high-tech restaurant. And here you see the quirks of individuals getting in the way, and uh, they're just disrupting even the smoothest of planning. Tati, I think, you know, the output is very different, but he is up there with slapstick geniuses like Chaplin and Keaton. And Playtime, he's working on his grandest scale. Yeah, and that scale comes through even if you've only seen it, as I have, on DVD at home. But maybe that's why it's not higher on my list. I've never had the full cinematic experience with Playtime. Yeah, and in fairness, I'm trying to remember. It was so long ago I saw this at Music Box. I don't quite remember if they were projecting in 70 millimeter at the time, but it was certainly, you know, just getting your face up there Mm -hmm. close to the giant screen will help you appreciate the immensity of what's going on here. Well, my number two is a film that plays out on a much smaller scale, certainly, than Tati and Playtime. It's Don't Look Back, the documentary from D.A. Pennebaker chronicling Bob Dylan's tour of England in the 60s. This is right before he went electric. So kind of just at the tail end of his folk period. And one of the things the movie really contends with is this reputation he has and trying to classify him, all the media and his fans trying to classify him as this voice of a generation, just burdening him with all these expectations. And he, maybe not surprisingly, after the events of this film decided, you know what, I've kind of had enough. I'm going to go in a completely different direction and confound all of you. I have some voicemail support on this one, Josh. And it comes to us from Jeff Milo, who listeners of last week's show may recall, helped me out with my number five sci-fi alien world, Star Trek Beyond. So Jeff, I think I'm just going to sign him up. Maybe he'll take a film spotting t-shirt just yeah, to I do just at say, least Jeff, one of my picks every Jeff, week. Ask for more than a t-shirt, okay? <laughs> hey, Adam and Josh, it's Jeff Milo and Ferndale again. Let's talk about 1967 movies. Um, I guess if I wanted to make sure we talk about one film, from 67, it's uh, D.A. Penelope's uh, Bob Dylan Odyssey, Don't Look Back. Uh, this is the film where we are sort of a, a, a parrot on Dylan's shoulders for his 1965 tour of uh, England, and we certainly feel um, how heavy those shoulders are being weighed on by this sort of this like, two-headed monster of celebrity and uh, expectation. You know, I think there's a, a great scene early on where he's interacting with young girls who are basically fawning over uh, Dylan as though he were Paul McCartney. Um, but then there are press conferences where he's basically being assigned uh, a responsibility by some in the press for, for being the voice of a generation, while there are others who are then trying to tear him down from that pedestal. So you combine all that, this confusion 
uh, of how do we engage with or uh, accept like a mid-20th century idol like this. This film captures that, that true idolization in real time going on. And this idea of, or this moment of him being called Judas by his, by, uh, by his own fans, ostensibly, it's powerful. Not to mention, um, technically speaking, the way the shadow and the light are such a character onto themselves. We watch uh, Dylan typing while Joan Baez is singing, and it's like we can barely see their faces. So that from Pennebaker adds a, a dreamy quality and uh, emphasizes how surreal his experience was. But uh, wow, what an image to preserve. Baez singing, Dylan typing. How's that not going to be inspirational for any aspiring folk singer of any preceding decade? This is one that was discussed first here on the show back in 06 as part of a documentaries marathon, a movie I had always known I needed to catch up with and probably love. And I did love it. Sam at the time loved it even more. Five stars for Don't Look Back. And then I found myself appreciating it even more when I checked out the film again as it was part of my cinema verite class I taught a few summers ago. And there is a verite element to it in terms of what Penny Baker is up to, where he's clearly not directing scenes. He doesn't seem as a filmmaker to have a preference or any real preconceived notions about Bob Dylan that he is trying to express. It's a case where we kind of have the option to decide how we feel about Bob Dylan. And it's very difficult, I think, to decide how we feel about him. Ultimately, that said, I think it comes through in Penny Baker's choices that there's not much effort to shoot unobtrusively. It's not always a case of him trying to be a fly on the wall, just capturing life. He goes out of his way to shoot these really private moments with Dylan, where clearly Dylan is hyper aware of the camera. And actually, Stephen Mamber, who I think wrote a book called Cinema Verite in America. He described the movie as a film about a guy acting out his life. And that element really does always come through. We're aware always as an audience of a certain amount of pretense involved instead of it being a case where the filmmaker is trying to cover up what is actually occurring and act like we are just observing this. No, the subject is always in on the game, so to speak. And does that then make it less true? Or does it actually make it more true? Is it a more accurate, honest depiction of Dylan as a character to behave the way we see him behave, knowing that we're all watching all the time? Who threw the glass in the street? Well, who did? Tell me you were there. Who threw it? You know who? All right. Hey, I don't care who did it. If you know who did it, you just better tell whoever did it to get out there and tell the cats that come up here to ask who did it, tell them who it was. I'm not taking no fucking responsibility for cats I don't know, man. I got enough responsibility with my friends and my own people. I agree. No, no, come on. I was out there. I don't care who was Hey, no. It's a wonderful film. It's also a hugely influential piece of documentary filmmaking. All reasons I need to see it. But I mentioned at the top when Kevin White suggested the trip, how there were many movies ahead of it. Yeah. And my need to see list, Don't Look Back, was definitely up there. I will get to it someday. All right. My number one, though, I have the other great Paul Newman film from 1967 at the top of my list. I'm going with Ombre. This is director Martin Ritz underappreciated genre entry. It's based on an Elmore Leonard novel. And here Newman stars as John Russell, a white man who was raised by Apaches after being kidnapped as a child. You can be white or Indian or Mexican. Now it pays you to be a white man for a while. Go to Sweet Mary. 
Say, how are you? I am John Russell. I own the Russell place. Put yourself on the winning side for a change. Is that where you are? A Mexican is closer than a white mountain Apache, I can tell you that. When he takes a stagecoach to start a new life in another town, he finds himself being discriminated against because of that association with the Apaches. Well, discriminated against, at least until the stagecoach is ambushed by outlaws, and then the other passengers realize they need Russell's skills and his toughness if they're going to survive. So I like this as the best film of 1967 and also as a nice pairing with Detroit because the movie is really all about race. It's very much an heir to The Searchers, a Hollywood Western that's acknowledging and trying to come to terms with its own genre's racist past, to say nothing of American history in general. I do want to emphasize, though, that Ombre isn't preachy. As I said, it's an Elmore Leonard novel, so it's cracking first. Like, it's just a good story. And, of course, it's got wonderful characters. You have Frederick March's duplicitous Indian agent. Richard Boone is here as a pug-faced bully. And then, best of all, is Diane Salento as Jessie. Mm-hmm. This is a plain-spoken boarding house operator. When I named her as one of my top five Elmore Leonard characters on episode 457, I said that she speaks the way Dolly Parton sings, and I just want to quote this line again because I love it so much. I've been wedded and bedded and loved and let down, she sighs at one point. It's really a great performance. Yeah, it is. I think I had her at number five on my list of Elmore Leonard characters. And then on top of all that, you've still got Newman, right? He's he's yeah. far more stoic here. It's really interesting to look at these two performances in the same year. Um, but of course, he absolutely holds the screen despite taking a little bit of a different approach, and he's, he still manages to smolder he's hmm. he's paul newman so yeah he does Ombre is uh, at the top for me if it's one that this is one that you know always comes up on best of 67 lists so if it's one that you haven't seen it's available on filmstruck right now i love it it's a classic larson take only this time you're not crazy it's a great film well, i really love it i just have it at like number 12 or 13 oh, and definitely oh. not ahead of cool hand luke which is my number one i felt like we had to go ahead and close this out i knew ombre would make your list let's just go ahead and make this the paul newman top five as you said josh the sheer number of quotable lines and the famous scenes from it are staggering and i went back through my google docs today just did a quick look search for cool hand luke and the number of top fives it's been considered for is seemingly endless movie prisoners to religious figures to death scenes you name it it just keeps coming up and coming up and that's why we did eventually put cool hand luke in the pantheon but i ignored the pantheon for the purposes of this list because it's paul newman and a little bit like alain delon there is that sense of cool to Cool Hand Luke. You can't help but admire him in some way, admire his resolve, his tenacity, his inability to conform, I suppose, to be this incredible man of integrity that he is. And at the same time, like Delon, I'd say even far more so, he is this tragic tragic figure because we know that he is just always going to be this misfit and all these people that seem to be just taking from him all the time they may seem to love him they may seem to revere him but more than anything they they need him he's kind of he is kind of their savior in some ways because he's the figure that they all kind of want to be that we all kind of want to be but don't have the integrity or the will to be this is another one josh 
Conrad Hall did the cinematography on this film, as he did in Cold Blood. And I did look at Ebert's review of A Cool Hand Luke because this is a movie I haven't seen in quite some time. And he made a really interesting case that I think you can make about a lot of Paul Newman performances, probably. But he said, of all the stars at the time, could you come up with someone else who could have played Luke Jackson. You can look at Warren Beatty, Steve McQueen, Lee Marvin are the ones he throws out. And he says they would have had the presence and the stamina, but they would have lacked the smile. And I think there is something to that, right? I don't think they could have had the sense of humor, the same level of charm, if you will, that would have made that sense of tragic that comes through in Luke's character that much more amplified because there is just that grace in him. There's a little bit of grace in him that I don't think those other actors would have been able to capture. Cool Hand Luke, my number one film of 67. <laughs> Luke, what'd you have to say, 51? Why couldn't you say 35 or 39? That seemed a nice round number. Luke, that's money you're talking about. What's the matter with you? Yeah, well, it'd be something to do. Not a bad year for Newman at all, I'd say. No, and as we've said multiple times here, not a bad year for movies. There are, of course, some honorable mentions you probably want to mention. Absolutely. Belle de Jour, as you said, I was able to catch up with it. Despite doing a loose Boonwell marathon, I had never seen the movie and really did enjoy it. I think I found it to be maybe one of his more tragic explorations of human sexuality than some of the others that we watched. There's certainly a lot of sly satire going on there as well. And Deneuve is wonderful. Bonnie and Clyde, yes, a seminal exercise in movie violence, not only depicting it, but making an audience think about it. So certainly would be in my top 10, along with Young Girls of Rochefort, which I mentioned. Mouchette, part of another film spotting marathon that we did. Robert Brisson there. And then Mel Brooks, the producers, came out in 67. That might very well round out my top 10. Hmm. I'm going to list my regrets, too, and and confess a few things. Okay. Uh, So don't look back. As I mentioned, Wait Until Dark, the Audrey Hepburn thriller that I believe the next picture show did an episode on maybe Mm -hmm. maybe last year or so. Discussed here as an After Hours episode many years ago. Okay. That was actually the one. I had the DVD at home. Just ran out of time. Scorsese made his debut. I still have not seen Who's That Knocking at My Door. And then... I haven't seen In the Heat of the Night yet. We were talking about that last time after the show, how it's one of those, I know I need to see. It's just hard. It's hard for me to imagine being surprised by it. Right. So, which means at this point, when I sit down to watch it, I will be surprised by it. Yeah, I hope you will. I got to get there. I was surprised by it. It's a movie I have come to really adore. The other titles for me that would kind of round out my top 10, The Dirty Dozen, Belle du Jour, as you said, Weekend from Godard, Playtime from your list, Josh, and The Jungle Book, maybe still my favorite animated film. The Jungle Book had to be considered. Really? Yeah, I love it. And is that a childhood? So, I mean, it's no, good. I no. enjoy it. I actually... You've revisited it? I don't recall seeing The Jungle Book for the first time until I was in college. Okay. All right. And I don't know why, honestly. It struck the chord with me that it did, but I've always loved it. As if all those titles that have been mentioned aren't enough, we did get an email from W. David Lichty from Indianapolis who suggested, and this is where things get really muddy, and he has a point because normally... According to our criteria right now, if we're considering the best films of 2017 or 16 or whatever, this would be a film of 1967. The Good, the Bad, the Ugly, Sergio Leone, is a movie that premiered in the United States in 1967, not 1966. But nobody considers it a 1967 movie. 
So I didn't for the purposes of this list. So, but it played in Italy in 66 is Correct. what you're saying. Yeah. I gen- So for these lists, I generally go with the original foreign release date. I do too. Yeah, but not yeah. when we're putting together like our top 10 films of the year. We go by when currently. it made its... Yeah, right. Exactly. Correct. Currently. Yes, so I, know I reverse it for right movies I see. We do whatever we want to meet our needs in yeah, the moment. That's true. <laughs> but... Thank you, David, very much for that comment. And to everyone who sent in some picks for the top five films of 1967, we would love to hear your number one. If you haven't already left us a voicemail or sent us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. That's also where you can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives all in the show archives. While you're there, go ahead and vote in the current film spotting poll with Steven Soderbergh returning to movie screens in a couple of weeks with Logan Lucky. We're asking... Who's the MVP of the Steven Soderbergh players? Also, if you haven't already, we do encourage you to check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts. We've got The Next Picture Show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release, the 18-year-old me is incredibly excited about The Dark Tower. With the fate of the world at stake, good and evil will collide in the ultimate battle as only the gunslinger can defend the tower from the man in black. Idris Elba is the gunslinger. Matthew McConaughey is... The man in black kidnap a mother stops at nothing to recover her kidnapped son with Halle Berry and Detroit. The movie we reviewed earlier in the show expands to wide release out in limited release, including right here in Chicago. Brigsby Bear, after being freed from the kidnappers he thought were his parents, a man sets out to make a movie of the only TV show he has ever known. Kyle Mooney of SNL co-stars and co-wrote the film. He's also in it with Claire Danes and Greg Kinnear. And we have the follow up to Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth an inconvenient sequel. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant, that's Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. One last favor we want to ask, can you give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts? We're always trying to reach new listeners. That's a great way to do it. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Are you trying? Yeah. You're not really trying. Yeah, I am. Wow. Why are you doing that with your mouth? Because that's how Owen Wilson talks. No, his his mouth doesn't like this. Wow. (laughs) That's horrifying. That's exactly how he talks. It's terrible to hear and horrifying to watch. That's exactly how he sounds. It's a bang on impression. Wow. That's not how he sounds. Wow. That is not how he sounds. The first one was better. He sounded like a 10 year old. Yeah, that's what he sounded like. No. Wow. No. no. Wow. No. Wow. <laughs> Hold on. What's her name? Um Wow. That was a little better. Starts out high. No, you don't have it. Wow. No. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time all in one place, the entire Film Spotting Archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.